Hey, good morning, guys. We've been looking at together some of the 300-plus questions that Jesus asked during his life and his ministry that we ought to answer. And the one I'm going to share with you this morning, well, this one, since I wasn't here last week, has been rolling around in my head for two weeks. So I hope that you're ready. Luke, he was a first-century Greek physician, and by his own account, he set out to record an orderly account of Jesus' life. He records this question in his gospel, and it comes right at the end of one of Jesus' most famous times of teaching. In Matthew, another one of the four gospels, this teaching is known quite famously as the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, interestingly enough, this collection of teachings is not known as the Sermon on the Mount, but it's known as the Sermon on the Plain. Now, there's scholarly debate as to if this is the teaching of Jesus in Matthew, if the one in Luke is the same one, is it the same event? But most scholars have come to believe that these two sermons occurred at two different times, at two different places, to two different audiences. It's just that the teachings contained in each of them, they were common and core to Jesus' message. He likely spoke these same things over and over and over again. And so Luke recorded them happening at one time and Matthew another. Once on a mount, another on a plane. Yet I have to tell you that they're remarkably similar. It's funny, one of the big things in the political world is that political handlers are always trying to get their politicians to stay on message. Friends, Jesus was on message way before politics got into play, and he didn't have any handlers. And the best part of it is, right after this core teaching, this core message, this circuit sermon, if you will, how does Jesus end it? Does he end it with a raised voice and an exclamation point? Nope. Of course he doesn't. In fact, you should know by now how he ends it. He ends it with a question. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, heck, even if you're not a church person, you've heard some of these timeless truths in the message. Luke's Sermon on the Plain is a more condensed teaching relative to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. It's only one chapter. Jesus, as seems to have been as usual, he leads off with some Beatitudes. You've heard them before. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when men hate you. Jesus pronounces some woes, woes to the rich, woe to the well-fed and the haughty. Many of you have heard these things many times. In fact, sometimes they're almost too familiar, and so we don't pause to reflect on them. But, but just think about what he's saying, what he starts with. Because put simply, Jesus is reversing the known way, the common way, the world's way of looking at people and circumstances. People that seem cursed on earth, it turns out, Jesus says, that they're the blessed ones. And, and the ones who on earth we would look at and say, well, they must be blessed, Jesus says, no, woe will be theirs. It's as if Jesus is trying to communicate right up front in his message, don't get caught up in the way the world views things, in the world's ranking of things, because it's prone to error, it's, it's misguided. And so after these introductions, he, he moves on to his core teaching points, there's actually 11 of them. He just rattles them succinctly off, almost as if he's done it before, which is, we've said, he, he probably has over and over again. Here they are, and while we've heard these before, remember, guys, to the audience, that first century audience, they weren't just 
knew they were counterintuitive. They weren't just counterintuitive, they were countercultural. In fact, in some ways, to the audience, they must have seemed counter-religious, counter-Torah for them. They seemed to go against their religious tradition. This is why in Matthew, when Jesus would introduce these points, he would start with, you have heard it said, but I say. Here in Luke, Jesus just gets out the points quickly. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also, and if they take your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. And then this first section of seven pieces, this comes to an end with what we know now as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, I want you to take a note. Just because something's familiar doesn't mean it's not radical. Because these truths are as counterintuitive and countercultural today as they were in Jesus' day. In fact, here, here's how he sums it up. I think we need to hear it again this morning. He says, look, if you love those who love you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And, and, and if you do good to those who are good to you, well, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting and getting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And then, again, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes with some four rules of reciprocity. When it comes to others, Jesus says, do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given unto you. Now again, I don't want to rush by these, right? It's radical stuff. It's, it's counterintuitive, countercultural. And, and again, seemingly, at least for that first century audience, counter-Jewish. Love my enemies. That audience had been taught to destroy their enemies. Turn the other cheek. What if they slap me again? Give to those who ask. I mean, intuitively, culturally, we've come to say, I'll give them a job or, or I'll, I'll give them a lecture, but I, I don't want to just give, give handouts of my hard-earned stuff. Do unto others. Yeah, I'll do unto others what they deserve, right? Don't judge. What the heck am I going to talk about at the lunch table? Or how am I going to make myself feel better about myself if I don't judge others? See, these, these were radical words. In fact, in fact, this is so countercultural and counterintuitive that Jesus tells them this. Well, actually, he doesn't tell them. He asks them this. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Which seems like a pretty silly question, right? But as I understand it, what Jesus was doing is he was taking, uh, making a play on an ancient Hebrew moniker which had asked could the person who was unwise lead a person to life and to wisdom? In other words, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is warning, is you got to be careful who you're following. 
Stop following people that are blind, that aren't living the way I just laid out for you. Stop looking to the example of people who are not living like this in, in these ways. Stop following what's cultural and intuitive. If you want to be wise, you follow wise people. If you want to be led well and avoid traps and pitfalls in life, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, guys. He's talking about our lives. You're going to see that in a moment. If you want your life to turn out a certain way, then make sure you're not following blind people, people who do not see things right, or you, like them, will miss the mark and you could wind up in a pit in your life. And it won't even be your fault. You didn't lead. You just followed. But your ends will be the same. And so with that in mind, he concludes this way. He says, the student is not above the teacher, but everybody who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Now, that might sound a little confusing until you realize the context. Because as many of you know, Jesus is this first century rabbi speaking to some of his first century Jewish disciples. The rabbi was the teacher. That was his role. And the disciples were the students. But a rabbi's disciples weren't just students of the law or teaching. Because rabbis actually differed on how they interpreted the Torah, the law. So a disciple didn't just want to know what the rabbi knew. A disciple wanted to be like the rabbi. He wanted to do what the rabbi did. And so what Jesus is saying here is you've got to be cautious about, church, listen to me this, you've got to be cautious when you pick your rabbi, when you pick your teacher. Why? Because they're going to train you in their ways. You will wind up not just being like them, but doing what they do. Now, this is true, right? We know this. We're all being trained in one way or, or the other. Our intuition, our norms, our values, our belief systems, they've all been trained up. We're all being discipled by someone or something. Parents, preachers, presidents, teachers, television, school, scholars, influencers, celebrities, marketers, consumers, cultures, they're all teaching us. They're all discipling us in their ways. And so what Jesus is saying to his audience is that, look, you're never going to be better than your teachers, but you will be. What you can wind up being is just like them. So you got to choose your teacher correctly. And so one question, just even before we move on in the story, that I might ask you this morning, maybe if you just kind of pause for a second, who is your rabbi? Whose teaching are you following? Who are you going to wind up like? I mean, we're all choosing our teachers, right? Is it, is it Fox News or is it CNN? Is it what your mama taught you or your daddy demanded? Is it, is it fairness? Is, is fairness, it's got to be fair. Is that your rabbi? Does fairness dictate principle to you? What principles have you built your life on? But maybe a better question is, whose principles have you believed in? Is it, if it feels good, do it? Is it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, is, is, it's okay? Is it, follow your heart? Is that what you should follow, your heart? Maybe you haven't thought this, but you've acted this way. Maybe you said, well... He's famous, so he must be right. She has a lot of followers, so that must be the way. Well, they seem happy or rich or successful, so I'll follow them. You see, Jesus, and, and apparently he did this quite regularly, like over and over and over again. 
Jesus, he too is looking for learners, for disciples. And what he's trying to do, he's trying to call them away from other teachers, other rabbis, because he is a teaching, a message, a way of interpreting truth and life. He has a way of interpreting truth and life that is very different than the culture, intuition, or even prevailing religion. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, love your enemies. Whose teaching are you building your life on? What are the core principles that motivate, drive, and, and constrain you? Where did you get them from? Jesus is saying you have to choose your guides wisely. In fact, he gives some advice here about picking our teachers, picking those whom we'll follow. Because remember, you're never going to exceed them in a sense. But you might wind up being just like them. You might wind up going where they go. He tells his audience, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Listen now. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus is saying to his audience, look, if you want to pick good rabbis, if you want to pick good teachers, pastors, leaders, you need to look at two things. First, you need to look at the fruit of their lives, what their lives have produced. Some of you know the Apostle Paul, the, the great first century evangelist who met the risen Jesus. He would go on to describe what the fruit of the Spirit of God looked like. He said it is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to look for a teacher, look for that in your rabbi. And then second, I, I love this. Jesus says, don't ignore his words because words matter according to Jesus. You see this all through the scriptures. Why? Because what unguarded words do is, is the unguarded words, they have a way of sneaking out and they reveal, maybe, maybe like nothing else, what the heart is full of. See, when you pick your rabbis, your teachers, your pastors and leaders, look at the fruit and look at their words. You know, people can fake the fruit sometimes. We've all seen that. And people can fake the words sometimes. We've all heard that. But it is really tough over time to fake them both. And so now what you might think is, sermon on the plane is over. We got it. You know, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, do this list of things. And it would be seemingly so, except for this one truly haunting and penetrating question that he insists on ending this with. It's kind of like a, if, if you watched any of the political stump speeches over the last few, few years, you know how at the end of every campaign rally, there's, there's a song that gets played. It kind of, you know, sums up what's going on. Well, that's this morning's ending. It was, the, it was how Jesus ended his, his stump speech. I want you to think about it this week. I, I hope that you'll wrestle with it as much as I've had to over the last two weeks. Are you ready for it? It's pretty, it's pretty penetrating. It's pretty convicting. Because coming on the heels of what, uh, what would have been uh, called today Jesus' stump speech, this radical, counter-cultural, counter-intuitive things he's just taught, 
And he's taught them over and over and over again about life, about how to live, about how to find life. Having said once again, said all that he just said, he ends with this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? That's a real question. I think we ought to answer it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, in the Greek from which this was translated, that word Lord there, repeated twice, means kyrie, kyrie. That was the word in Greek. It meant a person that exercised absolute ownership rights. Why would you call me Lord, but not do what I say? That's a real question. Look, it's not just a good question. It's not just a super important question. It, it, it might be one of the most important questions. In the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew recorded, Jesus, at the end of that very similar speech, said something shockingly similar. He goes, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, sound familiar? But this time he says, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. What, what is it again? It's the pairing of words and deeds, words and fruit. Words matter. Fruit matters. Jesus says, I hear your words, but you aren't doing. You aren't living in line with the ways that I continue to teach you. So since you're not, why do you call me Lord if you don't treat me like your Lord? If you don't do what I'm asking you to do. Now, I need to be very clear because this can be confusing here. This is not a question of salvation. We're saved by faith, not by works. The testimony of Jesus' words and the fruit of his blood shed for our sins to pay the price due a just God for all of our transgressions. The scripture is very clear on that. We are saved by grace through faith. But friends, don't be mistaken. Just as there's a relationship between fruit and words, there is a relationship between faith and works. Some of you know Jesus had a younger brother, his half-brother, the son of Mary and Joseph, named James, who, who grew up with Jesus. James put it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister was out clothes and daily food, which is literally someone in need of a coat like Jesus had just explained. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. In fact, he would go on, show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one. This is so, so convicting. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Jesus asks us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? Gosh, Jesus' brother says, even the demons, they do something. They shudder. Just a chapter earlier in the letter, James summed it up concisely. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers of the word, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Jesus goes, or excuse me, James goes, you know what hearers and not doers are like? They're like people who look in the mirror, especially people that get up around my age, a little bit older, and, and, and when they're looking in the mirror, it's as if they've come to an understanding of themselves and what they really look like. The mirror actually showed them what they looked like. Now, remember when you were a kid, you'd look in the mirror and you just would not care. In fact, one of the things that always hurt my heart a bit was when I was raising my kids when suddenly they started spending more time in front of the mirror because it, it meant to me that they cared what they looked like. There was a little bit of innocence lost. What they saw in the mirror made them pause. It made them want to work on it. See, now in my 50s, do you guys, I mean, maybe you have that yikes moment like I do every morning. See, in my mind, when I walk into the bathroom and look in that mirror in the morning, I expect to see Ryan Gosling looking right back at me. But what I tend to get is some kind of bad combination of Pee Wee Herman and Nick Nolte's mugshots staring back. You know, I was away last week. I went to see my daughter at college. I got to see her compete in a track meet for the first time in a while. And so I was on the road for a few nights. And what struck me was how much stuff I had to take with me to deal with what I see in the mirror every morning. I mean, between Joan and I, we almost needed a separate bag. Some of you know this. You've had to check a bag at the airport just to deal with what you see in the mirror in the morning. And we willingly and happily do it. We pay the extra 50 bucks. Why? Because that's how much we want to deal with what we've seen in the mirror. The faults and the blemishes, the, the counterintuitive truth that the mirror tells us. We'll do anything to deal with what the mirror is telling us. And what James is saying is, yeah, you're willing to do that because of what you see in the mirror, but when you look in the mirror of what my brother taught us about ourselves, his counterintuitive, countercultural teachings, when you hear them, when you read them, when they make you realize your shortcomings and faults and blemishes, when your life is held up to that mirror, why is it you're okay with just walking right on by, forgetting about what they revealed? I think what James might ask is, why is it that we're so willing to spend more time fixing what we see in a bathroom mirror than the mirror of Jesus' teaching? What do you care about more? I think we might be more committed to the things that make little to no difference in our lives like making sure our hair is in place or our makeup's right, than eternal things like our heart and our soul, things that'll make a difference for us in this life and the one to come. And, and so, both in the Sermon on the Mountain and the Sermon on the Plain, he concludes this radical teaching, this teaching on, well, on money and love and enemies and hate and giving and forgiveness and judging this teaching that, that Jesus was holding up as a mirror for us, he concludes it by asking this question. And now, in light of this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And then he, he ends with a parable. He goes, he says, and I know you know this one, as for everybody who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, into practice, you'll hear that word again, practice, this is where James got his ideas from, his big brother Jesus, who puts them into practice, not into a frame, not on a bookmark or a bumper sticker, not one who commits them to memory, but one who puts them into practice, who practices them. Jesus says, I'll show you what they're like. 
They're like a man building a house. Again, this is a parable, right? So Jesus is saying that somebody who practices these radical truths that he just laid out, it's like somebody that's, that's beginning to build something, right? In other words, the practice, the repeated practice of doing these things is not just for current pleasure or consumption. They're related to something bigger being, construction, being constructed. Something is being built. In this case, Jesus says a house, but what he's really talking about here is your life. Somebody who practices these things, Jesus says, and I'm teaching you, when it comes to your relationships and your job, your family, your kids, your spouse, your money, your pleasure, your public life, your private life, your sex life, your on life, your political opinions. See, that's the house Jesus is talking about here. It's your life. He says, now, when it comes to these things, when it comes to your life, anybody who practices just what I've taught you is like someone who dug down deep and laid the foundation of their life on rock. Who dug down deep. And you know what that means, especially in the first century? Do you know what it meant to, to build down deep? It meant that you were taking the time to build it the right way. The way that Jesus continually is outlining. It means, it means two things, really. That it's going to take more time, and it's not going to be easy. Anybody can pop up a prefab building quickly. Heck, slap some stone on the side of the thing, throw some nice furniture on the inside, and it looks pretty good. People will drive right by it or drive up to it and be jealous of it. They're going to make assumptions about it, right? Wow, look at that. But you see, it went up so easy. Jesus is saying that building your life on his ways won't be like that. It's going to take more time. It's, go, it's going to take some time to lay a foundation, to dig deep, and it's not going to be easy. The rock of a human heart is not easy to get through. It's, it's not quick or easy or painless to learn to love your enemies, to value the poor and the weak, to forgive those who've hurt you, to, to give to everybody who asks, to treat others the way that you want to be treated, to, to not judge or condemn. That is a process, and it takes practice. It is the hard way, the time-consuming way. It's not the flashy way. It'll be slow. It'll be painful. People might not be all that impressed when they see you building it. They might make faulty assumptions about you, but, but some of you need to hear this today as an encouragement because you're living in the ways of Christ with your bodies and your money and your time and your relationships. And some of us need to hear it as a warning because we've played too fast and loose with all of those things. But, Jesus says, when you build it the right way, when a flood came, when the difficulties of life came, when the unexpected came, when the things that nobody predicted might happen happened, the torrent struck that house, that life, but it couldn't shake it because it was well built. Now, to be fair, Jesus says there's another way to build a house, but the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. See, that's the quick way. That's the easy way. It's inexpensive. It doesn't have a lot of pain or, or sweat or labor or cost built into it. This is the way you build something if you think the weather's never going to change. 
There's a house there. It went up fast. It looked pretty good. But the moment the torrent struck, the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. And its destruction was complete. Its destruction was complete. It was, it was a total loss. It, it, it can't be rebuilt. It, 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 it's totaled. You're going to have to start over again. And, and if you keep building this way and again and again and again. See, it, it's these people that, that this happens to that look over at the house that's still standing next to them and think, oh, well, you know, you're just so lucky and things always work out for you. Things never go my way. I just have such bad luck. I think, I think what Jesus would say is, no, no, no. Same storm, same house, different builder, different rabbi, different disciple. Friends, why do we call him Lord, Lord, and we don't do what he says? I think the answer is because, well, it's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, it's slow, and it's costly. But if you'll do it, this life and in the life to become, it'll be changed. You'll be changed, different, better. You lay the foundation for this life not by being hearers, but by being doers. In the beginning, the doing is going to seem foreign and hard and different and slow and painful. You're setting a foundation in a rock. You should expect that. But you do it anyway. How, how do you do that? Well, Jesus' one word, it wasn't mine, was this. You practice. You practice what Jesus taught. C.S. Lewis, in his treatise, Mere Christianity, put it this way. In his chapter called Let's Pretend, he wrote, what difference does all this theology make? It can start making a difference tonight. And he says, we begin to practice just like the way I learned to throw a baseball when I was a kid. In my case, it was by pretending not to be John Eisman, but to be Tom Seaver. Heck, he, he says, this is how Jesus taught us to begin to practice when he taught us to pray our Father. He wrote, do you, he, Lewis wrote, do you not see the, what these words mean? When Jesus is saying that, they actually quite frankly mean that you're putting yourself in the place of the Son of God. To put it bluntly, you're dressing up as Christ. If you like, you're momentarily pretending. Because of course, the moment you realize what the word means, you realize that you're not actually the Son of God. You're not, you're not a being like the Son of God whose will and interests are at one with those of the Father. You're a bundle of self-centered fears and hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit all doomed to death. Yet, the odd thing is that Jesus ordered us to do it. Why? What's the good in pretending to be what you're not? Well, C.S. Lewis would answer, there's a good kind of pretending where pretense leads up to the real thing. Understand, I never learned to pitch like Tom Seaver. I never got better than my teacher, but I did learn to throw a ball. Guys, when you're not feeling particularly friendly, but you know you ought to be, the best thing that you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you were a nicer person than you actually are. And in a few minutes, as we've all noticed, 
you, you'll feel really friendlier than you were. Lewis goes on, very often the only way to get, uh, get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. That's why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers. But all the time, they're hardening their muscles, they're sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-ups helps them to grow up. This is what Jesus called putting his words into practice. Now, the moment you realize, here I am dressing up as Christ, it is extremely likely that you'll see it once once in some way in which at that very moment the pretense could be made less of a pretense, even more of a reality, right? Like, I have to change some things if I'm going to pretend this way. You'll find things going on in, in your mind which shouldn't be going there if you're really a son of God. And so then you stop them. Or you may realize that instead of saying your prayers, you ought to be downstairs writing a letter or helping your wife to wash up. Well, you go and do it. He, he says, I love this, Try to imagine the children's story, Beauty and the Beast, in which the girl kisses a monster only to witness the monster turn into a handsome man. Now imagine a story about an ugly man who wears a handsome mask. After years of wearing the mask, he takes it off only to discover that his ugly face has become handsome because it now fits the mask. This is where our preparation and practice meet the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us, to set us apart for God's purposes and use, to literally give us his life. Guys, this week, I know we know the answer to the question because we're all guilty of it, of calling him Lord, Lord, but not doing what it is he says. Jesus wants so much more for you and for your life. He is as tired as you are of your life getting blindsided by sin and circumstance. And he wants to be not just your Savior, not just your Lord, but your teacher. And just like any good teacher, he's asking you to do some homework, to practice, and to pretend. Will it be slow at first? Yeah. And it might not look good as you build the foundation, I mean, heck, who's ever driven by a foundation and said, look at that foundation? Very few people have. Very few people have ever been jealous of a foundation. That is until a storm comes. This week, be the wise man that builds his house the right way. Begin, pick one thing, practice, pretend. Build your house on the rock of Jesus' ways, and I'll see you back here next Sunday where together we're going to look at the only three questions out of all 300 plus that Jesus decided were worth answering. You go, my friends. Practice and pretend. I'll see you next week.